This is the STEM Read Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. I'm your host, Jillian King Cargyle. I'm a writer, a book lover, and the director of NIU's STEM Read. And I'm Dr. Kristen Brennison, otherwise known as Hot Pink Tech. I'm an engineer and an educator, and the director of professional development for NIU STEAM. Our topic today is what you don't know could kill you. Safety science. Kristen, I want you to know that pretty much everything in the world is trying to kill you. Did you know that? I didn't, but now I don't want to go inside or outside and I'm just stuck. Right. You're not safe anywhere. I'm not safe anywhere. Nobody's safe anywhere. (laughs) But people are trying to change that. Thank goodness. And people actually, people are changing that. We're, We're safer now than we have been. Yes. We think a lot about how to keep ourselves safe and how to keep our families safe. And it's good to know that there are experts who are doing that too, but sometimes the things that could harm you are not easy to see or easy to understand. We don't even know they're there. Right. I'm reminded of my friend, and she was very into buying all organic and getting her kids outside and in the sunshine and and cleaning with all natural products so she didn't have chemicals in the house. And when her son started teething, he actually started chewing on the handles of their cabinets in the kitchen, and they live in a very old house. He got exposure to lead because of those handles. As much as you try to keep yourself safe, there might be something else that you just haven't looked at yet. It's kind of terrifying to think about the dangers that are all around us. And I think we do a good job of putting it out of our mind. We wear our seatbelts. We clean with all natural products. But there's still a lot we don't know. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk to some of the people who do know, or at least are trying to figure it out. Both of our guests today are working to make the world a safer place, one through her research in indoor air quality and another through her book about the history of radium. Dr. Marilyn Black is an early pioneer of indoor air quality research, and Kate Moore is the author of The Radium Girls. So our first guest is Dr. Marilyn Black. Marilyn is the founder of Air Quality Sciences Incorporated and GreenGuard Environmental Institute. She is currently the Vice President and Senior Technical Advisor for Underwriter Laboratories and leads the Chemical Safety Group. She is responsible for identifying chemical risks of emerging technologies, developing strategies for reducing those risks, and helping people develop solutions. Here's our interview with Dr. Marilyn Black. My name is Marilyn Black and I live uh, currently in Atlanta, Georgia. And I am kind of a pioneer in indoor air pollution and its impact on human health. Kind of my passion is uh, studying and understanding air pollution from chemicals to particles to all sorts of gases and things and the impact they may have on human health with particular emphasis on children's health. Because once children get exposed when they're young, they have long-term exposures, which can ultimately impact their health outcome. I have an educational background in chemistry and environmental human health, which give me the the tools and, and basic understanding to explore all of this. One of the things that we like to explore here on the STEM Read podcast are those origin stories. So if you think back to the path that you've taken to get where you are today and become a pioneer in this field, what's kind of your origin story from when you were a kid to where you are now? 
Well, I think I think my origin story probably goes back to college. Uh, when I started college, I thought I wanted to go to medical school. I thought I wanted to be a medical doctor because I was interested in, in sick people and, and learning how to help them. I, I always had that background. I mean, when I went to undergraduate school, which was at uh, Mary Washington College of the University of Virginia, which was the girls' school at the time of the University of Virginia, I uh, met a professor by the name of Dr. Bernie Mahoney from Boston who got me involved in researching chemical exposure to children. When I was a senior, I was able to do a senior research project, and he introduced me to the concept that environmental exposure could have an impact on children's health. So I did, I did a, a senior project, which was looking at trace metal exposure to children by analyzing their blood and then looking at the correlation between lead levels and health implications for the children. And I found it absolutely fascinating and realized that this particular research area really was much better in being able to research and understand and finding solutions other than just treating the symptoms. So after that, I decided this is what I want to do. I really don't want to be a pure medical doctor. I want to be in the environment where I can research these things to really help bring solutions to the to the table. In your bio, it talks a bit about the work you did in the 80s around sick building syndrome. Yeah, yeah. So how did well, you get my- from there to sick buildings? <laughs> Yeah, well, it's all, it's all connected. So, um, you know, I went on to graduate school and, and got a PhD in, in chemistry, but with, again, a focus on developing the tools to allow us to measure the pollution uh, exposures that people were getting. But the first job I had out of graduate school was at the Wright-Patterson Medical Research Labs in Ohio. And at that time, it was the tail end of the Vietnam War. And I was able to get involved on a project where we were looking at health issues that many of the veterans and soldiers were having that were in Vietnam. And that particular project ended up being the dioxin project. And many people have heard of dioxin. It's a contaminant that is some of the most severe health implications of of any contaminant that we've measured to date. It allowed us to identify that this particular contaminant that was a byproduct of manufacture of the herbicide that they were spraying over the fields in Vietnam was present and exposure to these people was having this really profound effect. You know, I saw the people that were exposed. I was doing the measurements uh, of the levels they had in their systems, etc. And that was my first awakening that, wow, these chemicals at extremely low levels, and I'm talking about parts per quadrillion, I mean, extremely low levels, could have such an impact on human health. And then I realized that our whole environment is full of these types or similar chemicals, and that we have these real complexures of all these chemicals. And so after that, I continued down the route of studying air pollution and exposures to people that were in the environment. And a lot of that was initially outdoor. My career route ultimately led me back to Atlanta. And obviously, you can tell from my accent that I'm from the <laughs> South. So I, was, I, was happy to, I was happy to get back here. But I, went, I wanted to be on the faculty at Georgia Tech. I had been 
in research. I had, had been with industry some. I had been with consulting, the government job, but I hadn't really taught. So I went to the Georgia Institute of Technology. You know, as a professor, you're encouraged to do research. And I started looking out as to what sort of research opportunities there might be. So some of my friends at EPA alerted me that, wow, you know, we're, we're starting to have this issue with people inside buildings getting sick in their homes, in their workplaces. And we don't really understand understand why, but it's really becoming a big issue because people are getting to the point where they don't want to go work in their offices or they have to leave their homes because they're making them sick. And so I thought, wow, this is a really interesting issue and it's right up my line of understanding what they might be being exposed to that um, are, are causing these particular issues. And so I kind of took all the tools that I had been researching and learning and studying over the years and measuring uh, more outdoor air pollution and started applying those to the indoor environment. So I started going into some of these places where people were sick and started trying to measure what was in the air, what was in the dust in those buildings, et cetera. And coming up with that sort of data and correlating that to the health effects. It was the early indoor air science that was being developed. So I was able to be on that forefront of helping develop the tools, get measurements, and putting two and two together to see essentially that our indoor air is actually more polluted than our outdoor air. People were getting exposed to uh, hundreds of different pollutants at one time that were contributing to these health problems. Well, I thought it was interesting when you and I spoke on the phone a while back, you mentioned that sometimes the first people who feel the effects of poor indoor air quality are women. Yes. And in the early days, and, and a lot of this really began in kind of the 1970s. And it's the first time where, it, you know, we had an energy crisis around 1978. And one of the first things people did was to kind of board up their, their buildings, whether it was their home or their office building, because it was expensive to heat or cool the air. So they said, okay, well, let's control that so we don't have as much air that we have to heat or cool and, and spend, spend much energy and money on. But when they did that, what they did was tighten up these buildings and so there was no air flowing through it to allow any dilution or to push anything out. So any pollution that was originating in that building basically or got introduced in that building stayed there. And it began to elevate to levels that became irritating and, and hazardous for people. And the first people that really started to respond negatively were, in general, you heard a lot from women. Women in general appear to be really more, at that time, they were, they were really sensitized to their environment. They're really sensitized to odors or really anything that is unusual. And so, yeah, they were some of the very first that started responding and, and being concerned about this particular issue. Were they listened to? <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, you know, there were, there were, you know, at that time, the men to women ratio, especially in the work environment, was probably not what it is today. Uh, there are many more men in general than women, and, and especially in, in management positions. And so, yeah, it was a little bit tricky um, to deal with, uh, because a lot of times the women weren't in positions of authority to make decisions so they had to rely on other management folks and convince them, et cetera. So, 
Yeah, it was it, it, it was tough. Well, it sounds like convincing consumers that there are issues, especially when things aren't immediately visible, is still a challenge. So are there things that you are doing that helps in raise this awareness of air quality issues and the environmental hazards and what we as consumers can do about it? The type of air pollution, indoor, outdoor air pollution that I'm talking about, people typically can't see it or feel it. Sometimes they can observe some irritation symptoms and things like that. So it is hard for them to identify with it. You know, the best thing is education and outreach. It's really important to educate consumers on these particular uh, health risks that exist and things they can do to minimize exposure and that type of thing. So we spend a lot of time really doing education and outreach and understanding what the issues are and what consumers can do really from a practical standpoint, you know, how to make good decisions around managing their environment and even purchasing products that they use on an everyday basis that that affect the environment. And it's not it's not an easy task. There is a lot of it going on and I think the younger consumers now and the the new parent uh, generation, my observation is that they are so much more aware now and I think the education and available information is making a big difference because they're, they are aware, they are asking the questions, and um, so I think all that's going to help make good improvements. So do you want to tell us a little bit about GreenGuard then? Because that relates very closely then to the GreenGuard Environmental Institute. I love GreenGuard, so I love talking about GreenGuard. When I was at Georgia Tech and kind of doing all of this initial research and method development on measurement and understanding how you do assessments and understand impact on health, we developed a lot of tools and technology and the indoor air quality issue became very significant. There were certain industries that were being affected, like carpet. Carpet was identified as being a, at that particular time, a product that was emitting a lot of chemicals into the air and causing a lot of issues. And so there were certain state attorney generals, and the first one was Bernie Sanders out of the state of Vermont, (laughs) who wanted to ban the use of carpet in their states because they thought it was really uh, very significantly affecting the health of their citizens. You know, I really became involved a lot in looking at products. The other industry that was affected significantly was the office furniture industry. Those that were putting large amounts of furniture into office buildings, into educational facilities like universities, et cetera. And many of the folks inside those buildings believed that the office furniture was coming in and emitting chemicals and making them sick. And so a lot of what I did was to start developing technology to let us look very specifically at those products so that we could study them and understand what they might be emitting into the air and if they were emitting, what were those levels and could those levels produce the type of health symptoms that these people were experiencing. And so I I developed a along with the research team, a technology called environmental chamber technology that allows you to take these products, isolate them in a very clean environment, and measure their impact, essentially what they're emitting into the air and what that might mean. And so it became kind of a very accurate tool for allowing us to do that. 
because there are so many products, I mean, think about if you're remodeling a home or you're building a building, think about all the products that go in there. It can be carpet and wallboard and paints and, and furniture and air filters and ductwork and, I mean, you name it. They're all kinds, <laughs> All kinds <right>? of stuff. <laughs> now, all of those are made of chemicals. They have the potential to outgas and impact that environment. This environmental chamber technology became kind of the tool for studying all those products and doing that assessment of, of what their impact might be. And then it pretty much got adopted on a global scale as being a solid methodology. I had many, many manufacturers coming while I was at Georgia Tech saying, hey, we need help understanding our products, what they might be outgassing, and how do I move toward creating a more benign or safer product. And so I left Georgia Tech in 1989 and started a company called Air Quality Sciences. And it became basically an environmental chamber testing facility to work with manufacturers to help them create safer products. The first 10 years of our existence, we spent a lot of time getting kind of background information on products, helping manufacturers understand Here's what's coming out of your product. Here's what you maybe don't want coming out of your product, or, or maybe you want to change out these components so that you don't release this sort of chemical into the air. About 10 years later, it became very apparent that you know manufacturers had begun to change the formulations of their products, to change the way they manufacture, to really reduce the potential of these emissions getting into the air. And then we had kind of the green building movement that had begun where people wanted to design and operate green buildings. And of course, a big part of having a green building is making sure that that building is healthy also for the people when they're in it. Many people started coming to us at that time and saying, well, you test all these products. Can you tell us what products are the best? And how do I find the lowest chemical emitting product or the safest product that I, can, that I can use for my project or put in my home and that type of thing? And so we realized that the marketplace needed some way of finding those products. We set up the Green Guard Environmental Institute as a third-party nonprofit organization that would set the standard of acceptability for these products and once they went through verification of meeting these standards, provide a way so that the marketplace could find them. And so we started Green Guard, I think the year 2001 or 2002. It has been very successful, still in the marketplace. There are over 700 manufacturers of all types of products across the world that now participate in that program, test their products, qualify them, and make the market aware of their presence. About five years ago, we actually partnered and sold Green Guard to Underwriters Laboratories which is a safety science company that's focused on making sure you have safe, living, working, learning environments. So a very good match for us. So now they are running Green Guard. It's called UL Green Guard. Still the same. And I think there are over 80,000 products in the marketplace now that carry this certification. And I think this is a great example of how, you know, we have this health problem that started to get awareness of it in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And research then has driven us forward to make 
a real difference in the health of the world and the human population. Exactly. And people often ask me what drives me, and that's exactly what drives me. I love research, but I love research for a purpose. And, you know, to see something like this where you develop the science, I mean, it's discovery science in the beginning. You really don't know where it's leading, right? But you do it, you learn, and then you apply that information in your learnings to offer a real-world solution to a problem. It's a nice thing to do. When you're seeing more teachers do that kind of activity in their classroom where the students are doing more inquiry-based and solving real-world problems and making a difference. It's a good thing because, you know, as as we go forward, there are so many emerging technologies So emerging products that develop at such a rapid pace that our kids and our students today are going to have to learn to to do that, to move quickly, to do assessments, to make decisions and uh, apply them going forward. Well, and your current research now has brought you into the school areas, correct? And looking at air qualities in schools? Yes, I've done a lot of work at looking at air quality (laughs) in schools (laughs) where children children reside and, and, and And a lot of that is, you know, because, again, I guess if I take all of my efforts and all of my interests, my real passion is on children's health because I believe that we need to look at their exposure from the time, even before they're born, into their early years and try to minimize it because that cumulative effect of exposure to environmental pollution can can have a significant impact. You know, we're looking at all kinds of things from the learning disability syndromes neurological uh, reproductive issues that that many scientists and health professionals believe is associated with environmental exposure. So anything that we can do to minimize that starting at the youngest age and, and also, you know, getting students and children involved to understand to help be part of the solution is a great thing. What are, What's some advice you have for teachers and students if they want to get involved and they want to either participate in you know, research or they want to help raise awareness or just be informed themselves? There are a lot of things happening and students overall, you know, they're, they're being given uh, the opportunity now to become more aware of real world issues through learning modules or through role models and programs where uh, experts are being brought into the schools to talk to the children and online systems and all kind of things. So they're getting the exposure and and opportunities. And when they do, and they have the opportunity to work on a capstone project or to shadow an expert in some particular area, you know, I encourage them to to open up and, and do those things so that they can get the exposure. You know, it leads them to doing a a particular project or research initiative in, in those particular areas. Well, I was wondering what one of the most surprising things has been about your research. I go back to the very beginning. I think most of the most surprising things is that, you know, as as a child growing up, you think you're protected, right? You think, oh, you know, I, I, I have a home, I have a school, I have parents, I have teachers, and I have this whole shelter around me that's taking care of me. I think realizing that from the environmental pollution side, we have all of these hazards that we really are unaware of. And as an example of that, there are about 140,000 chemicals in the marketplace today that are used to manufacture all of the products that we use on an everyday basis. 
But we only know the health impact of about two or three percentage of those chemicals. You know, learning that we use all of these things before we really understand the health impact of them is not only alarming, but also a real red alert that it's something that we need to address in a more scientific and focused manner. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's a terrifying <laughs> statistic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, and it's terrifying, but, you know, it's always better to know and to recognize and to learn how to deal with it and, and what we can do to make it better. What advice would you give to teachers so that they can inspire kids you know, who might have an interest in chemistry, who might look at this as a career path? I work a lot, especially with young ladies in the school environment. And, you know, and the one thing I find is that many of them, by the time they get to middle school age, and that's usually fifth, sixth grade, they love math and science, but they start to hear and believe that math and science is hard. You know, it's going to be difficult. And that's all they hear. And so my encouragement is you, got, you have to get over that hump. And the way to get over that hump is to start showing them and getting them involved in applications of science in, in the area that they're interested in. You know, that's when it comes to finding some role models, getting them some real-life experiences, taking them into environments so that they can see more of the application and, and solutions that math and science can provide. So they're not focused on, oh, it's just a hard course. <laughs> I do love the materials that uh, UL have put out through their Explore Labs Yes, They've got some yes. great educational materials that are coming out to kind of see what is this safety science and how does it impact us? Absolutely. And, you know, I had an incident not long ago. I worked with the first robotics organization, which I'm sure you know. Oh, yeah. I wanted to, I, I was in Atlanta. There was a particular school and I wanted them to start a team. And, and we were over there, and it's a very innovative school. They have a lot going on, but they didn't really have anything kind of in the, in the science and engineering STEM sort of area going on at the time. And I said, let's form a team. And, you know, nobody really had the time. The kids oh, were too involved in this and this and this. A year later, I got a call from a young lady named Grace from the school said, I want to start robotics team and I said really Grace and it turns out Grace was a cheerleader but she and her friend who was a um, Meredith who was a volleyball player went to the regional championships that happened to be in Atlanta that year and observed the first robotics activity and they got so fascinated and excited about it, they decided they wanted to form a team. Neither of them thought they wanted to do, to do anything in science and engineering. And so um, they came back, started the team, and it's history now. We're 10 plus years for that school in, in, into the team. You know, they never thought they wanted to get involved with science and engineering. And I think that one opportunity to go see it in action and see the application of it and the fun the kids were having and all of the engagement and all of the recognition that they were getting, you know, just showed them another side of it. We hear that a lot too. It takes just exposure to it. It might just be one great teacher that got them excited, going and seeing a tournament where robotics are really cool that get them excited about it, but it's all about exposure. 
It's all about exposure and that person getting just the right exposure or meeting the right person that kind of ignites that spark. And sometimes we think of it as being one great book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> one great book that gets them interested. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I, I mean, I've got an, another story like this. At another school where I was, we helped initiate bringing in Pam Melroy, who is a very decorated astronaut. She was a test pilot, flown more test pilot events than anybody else anyway brought her into this elementary school and she she was going to give a um, presentation and the school decided to bring in the young kids that were like four and five years old pre-kindergarten kindergarten I said oh I think they're going to be too young to really understand all this and you know he brought her in she was up on stage and I was actually sitting on the floor with pre-kindergarten age group that were four. The little girl next to me while Pam was talking, and of course she had her astronaut jacket on and she was showing her washing washing her hair in space and you know and I, <laughs> I was curious. I looked over the little little four year old and I said, What do you think? And she said, Shh, be quiet. I'm listening. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. She I was mean, focused. Totally, totally had her engaged. And I mean in and I mean after that at least for the next year or so after that, all the little girls were saying, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be an astronaut. <laughs> she, she told them all that, hey, you kids that are in here, one of you can be the first, the first woman on Mars. And I think there's still little girls in that school that still want to be that first woman on Mars. Mm-hmm. I love that story. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was amazing. Kids never sense to amaze you, right? <laughs> no, and I think that's a good lesson because so many times we wait till middle school or high school to start exposing kids to job shadowing or career discussions or just just fun STEM-related activities. But man, bring it down to those younger grades because they just, they absorb them like sponges. Yes, yes, they really do. And they have phenomenal memories. Mm-hmm phenomenal memories we start to lose it when we get older but while we're young, <laughs> yes we do <laughs> through those very informative and developmental years uh, they remember it all and they don't forget anything any last closing advice that you'd give to the students out there who want to go into a stem field and change the world or make the world a safer place i encourage them all to get some exposure to the sense STEM and science field. One thing I, I, I would like to mention, and I've heard this recently from some of the students, is that STEM has really grown and there are a lot of STEM initiatives. But I've heard from some girls in particular recently that they may be interested more specifically in chemistry or biology, and they've been to some STEM events, and the STEM concept kind of has turned them off because it doesn't provide that more hard science uh, exposure and activity. And so, you know, I think we need to work to make sure that all of the sciences kind of get built into that and STEM just doesn't become engineering. That's for all of us to do to make sure we do that. But hey, my advice is everyone should get exposure, even if you're uncomfortable and you don't think you'll like it, just to get out there and get some exposure and experience it and see if there's something there for you. And then, I, I again, I like to encourage teachers to look what they can do to be a catalyst because they are important. Look for, look for those opportunities that can help these students experience and observe. You just heard our interview with Dr. Marilyn Black, an early pioneer of indoor air quality research. Up next is our interview with Kate Moore, the author of The Radium Girls. 
Kristen, one of the things that struck me in that interview was how much we still don't know about all of the products that we use. There's a lot we don't know. We we really know nothing. <laughs> we know a little. We knew. We, okay. we know two to three percent. We know two to three percent, which is something. Not as much as I thought we knew. Right. <laughs> There's a lot that we still need to figure out. I think that's interesting because especially when you're young, you think that people have the world figured out. You think that your parents know what's going on, your teachers know. Certainly the people that make these amazing products that we are using every day have tested them. Yes. And aren't just creating weird chemicals that uh, they don't understand. Right? Right. We, we kind of hold on to that as, you know, keeping ourselves in this safe little bubble because other people are taking care of that. Other people have have tested it. And right. They've sorted it out. They've sorted it out. They've figured it out or it wouldn't be for sale. <laughs> <laughs> My husband and I went back and forth on that when we were buying baby products. A lot of green products are very expensive, mm-hmm. but then we'd research um, off-gassing in baby mattresses and go, oh, There's a lot of off-gassing in baby mattresses. (laughs) Let the baby produce the gas, I say. So I think that's interesting for teachers and as a call to students is to say there's so much that is still being discovered and that can still be discovered, so many areas of research. Our next guest is Kate Moore. She is the author of over 15 books across genres of gift, humor, biography, history, and children's brand publishing. Kate Moore is the author of The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. Here's our interview with Kate Moore. So I'm Kate Moore. I'm the author of The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. And it's a book about the Radium Girls who, if you don't know who they are, they were these incredible, courageous women from the Roaring Twenties and the First World War who used to paint watches and clocks and dials with luminous radium paint that would glow in the dark. And the reason they're so significant is because that radium paint poisoned them. But their companies refused to admit responsibility for having hurt the women. And so they embarked on a groundbreaking fight for justice, a fight that would see them protect not only themselves, but countless workers in the years to come. And they've left us an extraordinary legal and scientific legacy. It's a truly tragic story because these women were killed in many places by the poisoning. And yet they fought on altruistically. Um, to ensure that they changed the world and made it a better place. It's a great book, and it's so amazing the way you tell it in such a novelistic way. So I want to look back to your origin stories. How did you become a writer, or why did you want to become a writer? Well, I've always loved books and writing. You know, I'm an avid reader, always have been since I was a child. And in fact, before I became an author, I worked in publishing as a book editor. So that love of books you know, continued throughout my life. I obviously still love books now. And I worked as an editor in publishing for about 12, 13, 14 years before I went freelance. It's been the best decision I ever made to go freelance because not only have I written books like The Radium Girls, but I'm also a ghostwriter. So I get the opportunity to work with some remarkable people who have had extraordinary lives. And I am in the privileged position of helping them to have a voice and to tell their stories. 
Yeah, I think that's so interesting that you do books like The Radium Girls and you also do ghostwriting. So how is that process different? Or is it different? Well, I was going to say, to be honest, in many ways, I kind of feel with the Radium Girls, particularly because of the way I wrote it, that I was concentrating on the individual women and wanting to bring their individual stories to life. Actually, I think for me, the process was very similar. And I kind of think of myself in a way as the Radium Girls ghostwriter. You know, this my name might be on the cover, but it's their story. And as people will see if they read the book, the book is filled with the women's own first person accounts. You know, it's got their court testimonies, their letters, their diaries, their newspaper interviews in it. So a lot of the book is actually their voices. And so it was a very similar process in a way of, you know, but rather than me sitting down with them face to face, I was having to sort of track down those words through the archives and so on. But also I did conduct interviews with their family members, which was very similar to the ghosting process of recording an interview. And then when I come to write the book, you know, sort of cherry picking the most emotive, special moments that they shared with me about their relatives. It's interesting that you're telling this story. You know, it's it seems unlikely that you would have come across this story. So do you want to share a little bit about that? So how did you find the story of the girls and, and how did you get excited about telling a story about these women in a small town in rural Illinois? As well as books being my passion, I'm also always been passionate about theatre. And so as well as being an editor and being a writer, I also do a lot of theatre as an actress and a director. I had only directed one play before and loved it. And so there I was in the spring of 2014 and I googled great plays for women because I wanted to find a play that I could direct that had really strong female characters in. I didn't know what I could find. I could, you know, Hedda Gabler could have come back for all I knew. (laughs) Um, But what did come back was a play called The Shining Lives by Melanie Marnich. And it's about the Radium Girls from Ottawa, Illinois. And the moment I read it, I didn't hadn't even read the whole play. I just read the opening page and I turned to my husband and I said, this is the play I'm going to direct next. It just resonated with me straight away. Melanie has written a beautiful interpretation of their story, but it was just the strength of these characters as well. And so I was in the privileged position that I did go on to direct the play. And the way I work as a director is I'm very much about backstory. I want to know everything about the characters, not only what's in the script, but everything else around it too. And of course, because this was based on a true story, there was a huge wealth of material that I could look up to find out about these characters, about Catherine Donahue and Charlotte Purcell. And so I did loads of research. I read the other two books that were available on the Radium Girls. And the thing that really struck me was, why isn't there a book that is about these individual women? The other books kind of looked at their legal legacy or their place in science, but none of them sort of walked in step with Catherine as she had the kind of excitement of of getting this very lucrative, glamorous job through the sort of uncertainty of the sickness, through finding the courage to fight for justice and take this hugely powerful corporation to court. And for me, that was the story. That's what's interesting. It's the humanity of these women. 
you know, their legacy is impressive. But what's more impressive to me is that they were ordinary women who achieved extraordinary things. And so even while I was rehearsing the play, I was like, there needs to be a book about these <laughs> girls. Why, why isn't there a book? Why isn't there a book that lets their voices shine and speak out? And so I thought, you know, even though I'm British, as you can tell from my accent, <laughs> um, and even though I live sort of 4,000 miles away from this tiny town in Illinois, if no one else has done it, why don't I? That's how the book started basically i i just thought these women deserved a book that gave them a voice and luckily publishers agreed with me and that's how the radium girls the book came to be well i'm so glad it did come to be one thing that i think is always shocking when i read the book and when i think about the book is the idea that radium was this miraculous substance that people yeah. were spreading it on themselves and, and using it as lipstick. Why was radium considered such a miraculous substance and what did the girls think about their jobs? Well, as, as you say, radium, you know, at the turn of the century and sort of at the time we're talking the First World War, the Roaring Twenties, it was seen as this cure-all. You know, you could literally wander into your drugstore and you could buy radium tablets to treat anything from hay fever to impotence to gout. And people took it as well as a, a vitamin, really. You know, you drink radium infused water to kind of give you a bit of a, a, a pet me up you know I remember one person who was a kind of fan of this substance said uh, he could feel the sparkles inside his anatomy you know people mm. took it to restore vitality them, to themselves and as you say it also had this sort of glamorous um, effect because it would glow in the dark you know people put it in cosmetics you know, soaps, lipsticks, face powders. It was also, you know, advertised in being in butter, in milk, in chocolate. You know, people thought it was this incredible wonder drug. Some of the documents I read were kind of saying how it would um, add years to our life. You know, was this the answer to achieving human immortality? You know, these were the big slogans that everyone was writing about. And so the radium girls, when they're getting their job as, as dial painters, they think they're so lucky because they get to work with this healthful substance uh, and it's glamorous and you know one of my favorite stories is about how they used to wear their good dresses to the plant because they'd get covered in this sparkling dust so when they went out to the speakeasies and the music halls the radium girls would be the ones glowing in the darkened halls you know so it, it was seen as this incredible drug at that time. I love the way you described that in the book, too, the way the girls kind of glowed and shimmered as they left the job. And you can, yeah. you can see why that was such an attractive position for a young girl. Absolutely. I mean, we, we still haven't lost our fascination with it. Mm -hmm. You know, I was at a, a concert the other day and everyone's got these sort of glow in the dark sticks and, <laughs> you know, thing, things like that. It's still, um, you know, glow sticks are, are still a thing. You know, they're not made with radium anymore. But it, it's a <laughs> thank goodness. <laughs> it's, it's a similar a sort of in, entrancing thing, isn't it? And that's exactly what Catherine and Grace and all the other radium girls were attracted by. Obviously, the, the thing that is really shocking about the story is it's one of those examples of people choosing what to believe from their research mm -hmm. because the book actually opens in 1901 with a scientist being harmed from handling radium because obviously radium is highly radioactive and it did give radiation burns to people handling it so people knew it was dangerous but what people sort of 
chose to believe and to conduct research in and then they chose to believe the research and discount anything else is that they thought small amounts of radium so what was put into the cosmetics and the tablets and so on they thought small amounts were safe and this beneficial to health you know sort of element because radium was proven that it could you know treat cancer in the same way that even today you know people still have radiotherapy to treat cancer radium is still used medicinally for that purpose but the problem was that they saw this you know result a and extrapolated to finding b which actually didn't wasn't the case it doesn't just because something cures cancer it doesn't mean it's going to make you live forever and that was the mistake they made and it was a mistake that obviously the companies chose to perpetuate because they were making so much money out of selling these radium infused waters and these cosmetics and these radium tablets they did not want to believe any evidence to the contrary that said that even small amounts of radium were dangerous hmm <laughs> if a little works well a lot must do wonders right right well exa- exactly this, this these are the kind of assumptions that they were making this is a very research intensive project that you embarked on what mm. what surprised you or or what was the most shocking thing that you found in your research I think I was really shocked when I was looking through the company records, you know, their memos about this scandal. So as the girls start getting sick, obviously, you know, some of the girls appeal to the company for help. Um, There were rumors circulating to say, well, Molly's sick and so is Helen and so is Irene. And, you know, the girls are starting to talk amongst themselves. And so the business is you know, they hear about these rumors, partly because it starts affecting business, they can't get workers anymore, and so on. And I think what was really shocking for me was to read some of the memos that they wrote, and to discover, firstly, how disposable they kind of saw these women as, you know, they're quite sort of negative in dismissing the women, and but also just how much they did know, and how much they covered it up. You know, that was really shocking to to kind of see that, you know, they knew it was dangerous. You know, even the company in the, at the center of the case in New Jersey, they actually published articles saying how dangerous and injurious radium could be. And yet, on the other hand, they're saying, oh, no, the girls are perfectly safe. So that sort of black and white hypocrisy and that black and white negligence lie, that was really shocking to me. I think perhaps the most moving part of the research was discovering letters from Catherine Donahue and Pearl Payne in a museum because they are just so heartfelt and heartrending to read about what the poisoning has done to them, about how lonely it is, about how they feel to be crippled in, you know, when they're only young women. All of that was just so emotionally overpowering to read. You know, I was frequently in tears as I was researching because I don't think this is a story that you can experience fully without becoming upset yourself. Absolutely. I I gave the book to my mother-in-law for Christmas and I said, yeah. you're going to love this and I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. It, it, did you it, pair it, it with Kleenex? Through, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it puts you through the ringer, but I kind of think because Several people have said to me, you know, the book is quite horrifying in places when I'm describing, you know, what happened physically to these women with a radioactive substance inside them that they could not get out. But for me, it's so important 
for the reader to kind of feel that emotion and, and to feel that horror because the girls had no way of not facing up to that. They had to go through it. And so it was really important to me to sort of pay tribute to that and to, you know, lay the truth there without trying to molly coddle a reader or to conceal it in any way there was enough of a cover-up as it was with what these women went through so let's take a, a long hard look at the authenticity of their experiences that for me was really really important and ultimately the story is very uplifting so do you want to, to talk about surprisingly so. <laughs> right <laughs> how horrifying it all was yeah. right do you want to talk about what became of their legacy what were the results of their ultimately of their court cases and of their lives the legacy they've left us is extraordinary and i think um i hinted at this earlier but i think what's so remarkable about the radium girls was the altruism in the way they behaved because you know they've been given a fatal diagnosis that what has happened to them is going to kill them it's going to certainly harm them on a long-term scale and yet they still chose to embark on this fight what was extraordinary as i say at the time the girls got sick everyone believed that radium was this cure-all so they were genuinely scientific pioneers in terms of what they were experiencing people had never seen these kind of symptoms before certainly in america there was a woman in germany who had died of radium poisoning so what had to happen for the radium girls is they had to get an expert medical practitioner who could prove that what they suspected that their job had hurt them was in fact the truth and there was this remarkable doctor called Harrison Martland who worked in Newark in New Jersey and he actually devised tests for the first time and in so doing measured radioactivity in the human body for the first time and he was the one who proved that it was the radium that was hurting the girls. And in so doing, he actually demonstrated a kind of internal radiation that had never been seen in human beings before in history. Their legal case was one of the first cases where employers were held responsible for the health of their employees. That case then led on you know, to other cases being inspired and ultimately to the establishment of OSHA which now works nationally in the United States to ensure healthful working conditions. And since OSHA has been established, you know, the number of fatal accidents at work and work-related illnesses have dropped dramatically. I think it dropped by about 10,000 cases a year or something like that. It's an extraordinary figure. So the legal legacy is that employers now have a responsibility to their workers. And the scientific legacy is also extraordinary because the other altruistic act of the radiant girls is that they submitted to medical testing sometimes for years um, they allowed scientists to take bone marrow biopsies and to conduct autopsies on them after they had passed away and this reserve of scientific information that the women endowed us with is completely invaluable they are one of the few groups of people where they had suffered internal radiation poisoning. And so the knowledge they've endowed science with in terms of us understanding the dangers of radioactivity has been extraordinary. And of course, that in turn leads on to safety standards at work. You know, I've had several people contacting me to say they work in the nuclear industries. And for example, they will wear a sort of measuring device on their outfit at work, which measures how much exposure to radiation they've had. 
And that kind of safety mechanism has come about entirely because of the Radium Girls and their fight for justice. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing to go from wearing party dresses to handle Radium to, <laughs> to what we yeah. have now. So what we have now, it is extraordinary. And I mean, they lost their lives, but they have saved probably millions of lives ultimately you know the other part of their story is of course they were suffering in the roaring 20s and the 1930s well fast forward two decades and we're in the middle of the cold war and the nuclear arms race and again because of the knowledge we had gained from the radium girls that is partly why kennedy signed the limited test ban treaty so if you think Mm -hmm. you know if we didn't know what we knew from the radium girls could it be possible that people would have continued doing above ground nuclear tests for longer than they did you know what does that do to our ecosystem what does that do to our crops to the planet when you asked earlier about you know what shocked me in my research what was I surprised at the fact that they left us this incredible legacy and and that is barely talked about actually they had a sort of long-reaching effect throughout the 20th century uh, and beyond what's interesting to me in the book is how they had to convince their employers that this is what was hurting them, that it was, you know, you're not being believed, you're, yeah. you're being brushed off. And, and, th- and that was something that um, a lot of women in particular, but I mean, to be honest, it is across both genders, mm-hmm. you know, trying to speak out particularly against occupational poisoning and occupational hazards, that is demonstrably difficult throughout history. You know, people don't listen, they don't want to know, they try and denigrate the women, they dismiss them, they silence their voices. You know, in the case of the Radium Girls, the companies hired private detectives to dig up dirt on them because they wanted to discredit the women. These are the kind of tactics they were faced with. And unfortunately, it's a story that still feels very resonant today because similar things sort of happen. There are still corporate cover-ups. There are still fights for justice where people are keeping on trying. And I think I hope that the Radium Girls story is one of inspiration about the tenacity that you need to fight these kind of battles. But also, if you do fight on long enough, eventually justice does come to pass. You had uh, the opportunity to visit some schools while you were on your book tour. Is that right? Yes. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how did the students react to this story? They were completely engaged, actually, which was very rewarding a it's an incredible story but i think as well you know one thing we haven't mentioned in our conversation yet is how young these women were you know they were teenagers when they were working as dial painters you know catherine sharp who i opened the book with in chapter one was only 14 when she started work so going into schools and meeting high school students well a hundred years ago this could have been them And I think that really brings it home to them. But I've had some really lovely messages from students kind of saying how inspiring they think the girls are, you know, that they're an example of the fact that you should never give up fighting for what you think is right. That is perhaps the best legacy of all if they're inspiring future generations to find the courage that these women had. Is there something that you personally learned from the girls' story that you take away I feel such a connection to these women having, you know, directed their story on stage, having embarked on this research process. You know, I've lived with them for for years. And when I wrote the book, I had pictures of them surrounding my desk. And 
yeah, they are they are definitely inspiring heroines to me in in all sorts of things. You know, even even to the extent of if I'm facing something that I think is going to be painful, and I think, well, whatever it's going to be like for me, it's going to be nothing like what they went through, and they got through it, so I can get through it too. Right. It definitely puts things in perspective. <laughs> I'm having a bad day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like these working conditions might not be great, but I'm not eating radium in my job so yeah. that's well, and I can't imagine like living as you said living with these women for as long as you did to tell their story and then having that come to a close when you finished the book how, how yeah, do you but, how do you move on well, what's wonderful about it is you know I'm still talking about it with you with you now you know it that's what's amazing I guess about about being an author and about writing a book is because it's never over you know I I have since written you know several other books since I finished the Radium Girls book but I'm contacted by readers who have only just finished it and for them it's as fresh as it was when I wrote it and that keeps it fresh for me as well you know so as I say they will always be with me and I'm very privileged that I get to spend so much time with them and for them to occupy so much space in my head and my heart. So what is your next project? Well, um, I've, <laughs> <laughs> I have, I've written quite a few books since I, since I finished it. As, as I say, I'm also a ghostwriter. So I've been doing a fair amount of ghostwriting. So I have, a, I have a new book coming out in May that I've just been working on, um, which is called Caged Bird. It's out in the UK in May time, which is the extraordinary story of a woman, Katie Morgan Davis, who was born into a cult in Brixton and who grew up thinking that the world was full of enemy agents and that she was only safe within the cult. And she only realized the truth through, through reading. And it's this amazing story of how she, the extraordinary life that she lived in, in this cult, but also how she came to learn that things were wrong, how she managed to escape, and then how she adjusted to the outside world, you know, age 30, never having been allowed to cross a road on her own, to catch a bus, you know, to interact with others. She had to learn all of that from scratch. So it's a remarkable story. Oh, <laughs> that's a, that sounds like a difficult read too. Yeah. And like an, it sounds like an amazing story. So what what attracts you to these stories? What what types of stories do you look to tell when you're looking for your next project? As I say, I like giving people a, a voice. So I often look for people who have been silenced in some way, um, so that I can help them to speak out. I look for stories of injustice. Um, because that really fires me up you know the I think people can probably uh, tell if they read the radium girls you know how personally invested I was in their fight for justice and that kind of thing really engages me so with Katie's book for example the the cult book I've just mentioned she she was essentially imprisoned by her father it was so unfair what happened to her you know I mean he, he was convicted of of child cruelty you know you can't imagine you have a child, they're so impressionable. And yet he fed her all these lies about how he was a god. And of course, she believed it as a child because you would. And so, you know, part of her story is about her fight for justice as well and how you deal with that. So, yeah, in terms of future stories, people speaking out, people having a voice, people fighting for justice, and especially sort of female-centric stories, um, I'm always attracted to those in particular. So how do you find these stories? Are you doing research? Do they come to you by chance? It's a, a variety of things. But I think, yeah, I mean, 
just being sort of open to things is, is a good idea. Marinating on various ideas that might then lead you down a path to think, okay, I'd like to write a book in this area. So I'm going to see if there's a person that might have a story in that thing, you know, following the news. So Katie's story, for example, I found, you know, because her case had come to trial and there was a lot of newspaper coverage about it. And I just thought, what an extraordinary story she had. So it's, it's a mix of things falling into your lap, serendipitous moments like <laughs> my discovery of these shining lives, you know, who, who could have known that that Google search would lead to me talking to you now about <laughs> these amazing women from 100 years ago. You know, life has a funny way of throwing projects in our path at the right moment when we're meant to discover them. And so far, all of my books have kind of followed that sort of serendipitous route. So I hope that that will continue. You just heard our interview with Kate Moore, author of The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. The Radium Girls is published by Sourcebooks and is now available for purchase in paperback. So Kristen, I think another great title for this episode would have been Exposed, because <laughs> we talk a lot about exposure to chemicals mm -hmm. and, and what that did to impact people, but we also talked about that same language can be twisted in a different way and be a very good thing. We're exposing students to STEM, we're helping them learn, mm -hmm. instead of exposing them to things that will certainly kill them. What was most interesting for me listening to Dr. Black speak was how she started in the medical field, but that same passion and desire to help people and her interest in chemistry took it in a different direction. And she didn't realize that unless until she was exposed to the opportunities that were available. And I think that's a big lesson for us as we work with students is getting them exposed to all the different possibilities that STEM careers have, looking at where they could go with it and the impact they have on the world. And I think we heard that in Kate Moore's story too, is, is having that openness to the possibility of new things and letting yourself ask questions and chase that line of inquiry that you're interested and excited about. I thought that was fascinating that Kate just started Googling things, mm -hmm. which led her to this journey. So you don't know where the inspiration is going to come from. But if you close yourself off to possibilities, then you won't hit upon these great stories or these great points where your career can evolve and change. Well, I just love how both of our guests humanized STEM and humanized these topics, whether it's telling the stories of women who were impacted by these hazards or looking at how research and inquiry can have an impact on people and change their lives for the better. I love that the Radium Girls can be a source of inspiration now for students who are interested in STEM or who are interested in women's rights or safety of any kind. And it can really help them take a look at what's happening in their world and to their own bodies and grow from there and try to impact things in a positive way. So I think this highlights the importance of projects and problem-based learning in the classroom, not just at the upper grade levels, but even down with our younger students. The more often they can see how the contents that they are studying in their classrooms relate to real world problems and that they can do the research and come up with the solutions that might have a really big impact and solve some of these problems. Because again, there's a lot out there that we don't know. So here's to the future scientists and engineers and STEM experts. Hopefully you'll figure out what's killing us 
and stop it from killing us. We're counting on you. If you like the STEM Read podcast, leave a review on iTunes or connect with us on Twitter. Support for the STEM Read podcast comes from Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. The STEM Read podcast is produced in collaboration with WNIJ. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.